Matthew 20, beginning to read at verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we look with delight and uh, with reverence as we uh, seek to understand it and apply it, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify our hearts, subdue our flesh under the feet of Jesus Christ and enable us to rejoice in your law, to be able to say with David, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all of the day. Pray that you would be with this your people. Strengthen them. Build them up in the most holy faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began a series looking at Various facets of evangelism by non-experts. You don't have to be an expert to be used by God to lead someone uh, to the Lord. And uh, there are some things, though, that help to make our witness much more effective. And last week we began by looking at some things that we need to put off. And today we're going to be looking at some things that we ought to be putting on. These are nine different ways in which we can say, I love you. Uh, without even opening our mouth, without words. And those of you who know and have studied the five languages of love, uh, you probably know where I'm going to be going with this because uh, while it's important to communicate with our lips, and uh, this Tuesday we're going to begin this uh, Ray Comfort training on, on uh, how to be effective with our words in communicating the gospel, there is a lot of actions and a lot of attitudes that communicate without our words. And so these nine ways of saying I love you or that I care, really it's my hope that they will reinforce and strengthen the kind of words that will be coming out of our mouth as a result of this Ray Comfort uh, series. And if you haven't signed up for that, please do. Uh, It's not like we're going to be offering this every few months or so. Uh, This is your one chance or you've blown it for life. No, (laughs) we might offer it again, but really we're going to put the pressure on and hope you guys will take advantage of this. Okay, first thing that I see in this passage is that Jesus was not programmatic in the way he approached evangelism and mercy ministries. And you can see this in two different ways. First way is that this really wasn't something that was planned uh, by Jesus. Well, it was planned by the Father, but it wasn't part of Christ's schedule. Uh, It was uh, something that happened on the way to Jerusalem. And I think it's very easy for us to be not sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit when we've got a tight schedule and we've got a whole bunch of things that we need to do and something uh, is, is not a part of our schedule or program that's come up. When pastors say ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people, <laughs> they're being programmatic. 
I want to engage in ministry, and they're forgetting the people to whom God has called them to minister. You know, God kind of whacks them on the side of the head. Look, if there weren't messed up people, we wouldn't even need you as a pastor. Uh, you know, your whole purpose is to try to be bringing people to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So get used to it. Uh, this is what ministry is all about. And when you're po- program-driven, here's one way you could be program-driven. I got to get to Jerusalem before the feast starts. It'd be very easy for you to just bypass that lady who's broken down on the side of the road, and you're thinking, oh, somebody else will stop for her. Uh, why? Because I got to get through the schedule that I have set for myself today. Very easy to be f- program-driven. And to be insensitive when the Spirit uh, prompts us you know, to do something generous or gracious with another individual. So your schedule, get this, your schedule can actually keep you from ministry. Your your budget that you set up last week can actually keep you from taking the proverbial shirt off your back and giving it to somebody that the Spirit has prompted you to to aid and and to help. Why? Because it's not in my schedule. It's not in my uh, budget. Now, get this. This is a really important principle. If your plans, your schedules... And your budget can never be changed or broken, you are implying that you are omniscient when you put that budget or that plan or that schedule into place, which is ridiculous, right? Uh, obviously, the only thing that we can do, we can't know the future, we cannot control the future, the only thing we can do is with the information that we have, make the best plans that we can make, and then James says we have to lay it at the altar and say, if the Lord wills. I will do such and such. And just be sensitive then to the Spirit. Lord, what are you wanting me to do in this situation? Do you want me to change my plans? I'm willing at any time uh, to change my plans. But you know, uh, this issue also slices in a, a different direction. We can become programmatic even when we are excited about helping all of the poor people that we can possibly help. Socialism is a kind of programmatic approach to helping people. Uh, Let me explain it this way. Jesus was not focused on disease and poverty or any other problems. He was not focused on needs. He was focused on people. And that meant that it was not Jesus's goal in life to do away with all disease, to do away with all poverty or any other miseries that were out there. That was not his goal at all. And the reason I can say that dogmatically is there were tons of people that Jesus bypassed every day and did not heal. You can see that through the the, the book of Acts. Actually, you can see it right here. Jesus was passing by these guys. It looks like he has no intention of healing them. And it was not until they take the initiative, they cry out, and the Spirit prompts Jesus to stop and to talk to them, that he goes up to them. I think they would not have been healed apart from... Uh, their initiative that they had taken here. Well, obviously, there's God's sovereignty in his plan, and he's the one that stirred up their hearts to seek this, right? But in terms of human responsibility, uh, Jesus was not about healing every person. If you look in Acts chapter 3, there was a man there who had been lame from birth, and it says throughout his whole life he had been laid there at the temple begging every day. That means that Jesus had to have walked by that lame person many, many times during his ministry, and yet he didn't heal that person. You look in Acts 5 at the number of other people that were healed in and around the temple, and you know, Jesus knew those people needed healing, and yet he did not heal them. And so, uh, if it was not for the initiative of these two blind 
men that they had taken, they would not have been healed. You might think, okay, why are you bringing that up? How does that relate to being loving? You know, how is that saying, I love you? At first blush, it may not seem like the loving thing for Dominion Covenant Church to say no to a mercy ministry request, to totally ignore other mercy ministry needs that are out there. It may seem the exact opposite, and it's a good question. Why didn't Jesus seek out every lame person in the country and heal him and her? And one perverse thought that might come to people's minds today is, well, he's just one person. He couldn't possibly do it all. We need big government programs to be able to deal with all of the needs uh, that are out there. And we're so used to big government developing big programs to do away with poverty and to throw money at various issues that we interpret the anti-poverty programs of the government as loving people. And Jesus says, no, that's not actually uh, the, the case. Anyone who has been served by government welfare knows how impersonal it is. And it's true. Lots of people have been benefited by it. I'm not questioning that. But it's not personal. It is not loving. And people feel demeaned when the programmatic approach is applied to them whether it's in evangelism, mercy ministries, or anything else. Christ approached every person uniquely and individually. He treated them as, as persons. He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, which meant sometimes it looked like Jesus was being reactive rather than proactive. Now, he wasn't. He was always being proactive, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes it may have appeared uh, to be that way. His goal was to minister to the people that God sovereignly brought along, not to fight against all disease. Now, I think we uh, in this church, and I many times have said this myself, we speak of the government's desire to put a chicken in every pot and to do away with poverty and all of these things. We speak of it as the messianic state. But really, that would be an ironic way of speaking, if I'm using the term ironic right, uh, because the true Messiah never did that. He never modeled big government or big church or big money being thrown at problems. What he modeled to us was a kind of ministry that any one of us can engage in. And to me, it's very encouraging. Can any one of us help out if somebody comes to us and says, you know, you know I haven't eaten for two days. I'm really hungry. Well, of course we can. It's very easy. You don't just ignore a person like that. You say, look, uh, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'll take you into Burger King. And in fact, I'd like to talk with you for 20 minutes. And uh, this one guy, man, he ordered about four hamburgers. He was ravenous. And so while he's wolfing down these burgers, I had an opportunity of sharing the gospel with, with them. Any one of us can do the things that Jesus was modeling. He was not modeling a programmatic approach. So when you start getting this training from Ray Comfort on Tuesday, I don't want you to see this as a program that's going to fix things. See it as a tool that you as an individual are going to be using. Second principle that I see in this passage is we must not let individuals get lost in the crowd. We must focus on the individual, not on the crowd. Verse 29 says, a great multitude followed him. Now, working with individuals is a whole lot different than working with a crowd, and the interrelationships that go in a crowd relationship much different than on a, a, a lower level. For example, uh, there are people in this uh, congregation, if you're talking one-on-one -on -one with them, they're very conversational, very open. You add one or two people, they'll still talk. 
but they're more deferring to what the others say. But as the group gets bigger, these people will finally be quiet and you won't get a peep out of them, even if everybody's talking for a whole hour. In fact, I can tell with some of you just how small the group has to be before you're going to be willing to pray at a prayer meeting. Okay? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just some people are very sensitive to the group dynamics and there's other people who are a little bit less sensitive. We call them extroverts. <laughs> and they're willing to talk in any situation, okay? Uh, now, I don't know if these guys were extroverts. Uh, probably more likely they were just desperate. And they were saying, oh, Jesus is coming by. We need to get at them. And so what they're doing is they're forcing the crowd to see them as individuals. Not everybody does that. Not everybody's willing to do that. And so we need to be sensitive. What is God doing in this individual's life? In fact, some of you guys are really good at that. You, you, after the worship service, we stand around. We're really enjoying conversations. And some of you, you'll notice there's a person over there standing all by himself. You see, he's still standing by himself. I need to go over because that person's having a hard time breaking into a group or talking with a group. So you go over to engage that person, try to bring them in. That's a wonderful application of this principle. You're dealing with them as individuals, not just with a crowd as a whole. And that's the way that Jesus was doing. Now, the crowd may say one thing and the Spirit may say something totally different. In this case, the crowd was saying, don't even talk to these people. And he's, the crowd was saying, shut up to these people. The Spirit was saying, no, you talk to these people. Look at verse 31. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So here's the principle in a nutshell. Focus on individuals, even in a crowd. The individual may not expect you to focus on them. The crowd certainly does not expect you to focus on them. Uh, but if our evangelism is to be effective, we've got, we must not allow the individual to be lost in the crowd, and they will be. Now, this is not just a protection for the individual. It is a protection for us because I think we would be emotionally overloaded. We would be emotionally overwhelmed if we took into our bosom every problem of everyone in the whole crowd. Now, we can't possibly do that. In fact, some of the most insensitive people out there are the people who work in these big government agencies uh, for Indian affairs and welfare and other things like that. And they have to be. It's a protective mechanism. They would absolutely burn out if they began to take in all of these sensitivities to what everybody is feeling. They just begin to treat people as statistics that are out there. What I'm wanting to say is a much better protective mechanism than shutting off your feelings to all of those is asking God's Spirit, Lord, is there anybody here that you want me to minister to as you're looking around? Don't let the individual be lost in a crowd, and the Spirit's the one who can help you to do that. Okay, third principle. Don't be put off by eccentric behavior. <laughs> now, you may not think of what these beggars was doing as being eccentric. It really was. It was a very eccentric uh, behavior uh, that they were engaging in. And so let me just use an illustration to help you to kind of identify. Jesus is in town. He's uh, speaking, and he's picked Christ's community because they got a big auditorium there. And you're really excited. You're there wanting to listen to Jesus. Two minutes into his talk, there's two guys in the back of the auditorium 
who are yelling out at the top of their lungs, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And it's really annoying. People are turning around and saying, shut up. Will you shut up? And the ushers are coming saying, if you don't be quiet, we're going to call the police on you. But they don't take no for an answer. They keep shouting even louder. And to make matters worse, when Jesus stops and says, yeah, what do you want? They run up to him. They throw aside their garments and it appears, maybe it's not nakedness, maybe they had some undergarments, but it seems like the garment, the one garment that they have, uh, they, they throw off. And you get that from Mark chapter 10, which is the parallel uh, passage. It says, throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now that is eccentric. <laughs> and now maybe I'm reading more into this than is there, but growing up in Ethiopia, when we were accosted by beggars all the time, And in China, man, you have to be really good at at ducking these beggars who are trying to grab hold of your sleeve. Once they grab hold of you, man, it's hard to get rid of them. And uh, they have lost all sensitivity to what's socially proper. They have to to survive. So they've become eccentric in in one sense of the term. They've become kind of um, annoying as well. And when you engage in evangelism, you're going to run across people who are eccentric, who are annoying, maybe who dress in drag or who are a few uh, bricks short of a full load upstairs or maybe are bums or stuff like that. And what this point is saying is don't be put off by their eccentricity because if, if they sense you're really put off, they're not going to know that you care for them. You just have to realize, I need to get past all of these outer things and care for their soul. And if you're looking at their soul, you're going to be able to do that. Fourth principle is to carefully examine the true needs of others. Now, they're going to come to you with their felt needs, and we'll get to that point a little bit later on. But many times their felt needs are not their true needs. You know, they don't maybe even recognize what their true needs are. Now, verse 30 says they cried out. That's not unusual. Beggars cry out all the time. Please give money for me, alms from the poor. And, uh, and Jesus heard something different about their words. The cry for mercy was a little bit different from their usual cry for money. Now, they use the title, uh, two titles actually, Lord and Son of David. Those are messianic titles, so it, it may indicate there's some spiritual dynamic that's going on inside of them. Perhaps it was in the, the intensity of the cries. We're not told, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them, indicate there was something unusual happening here. Now, on this occasion, men cry out with their voices. Jesus reads between the lines. There are other occas- occasions where they don't cry out. They're silent. Jesus reads between the lines. For example, when, in John, when he went to the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, without her saying a word, he already knew a whole lot about that woman because uh, women would ordinarily not have come out at that time of day. She was obviously a social outcast, and there were things in her life that she was probably unwilling uh, to talk about. And those unspoken needs are vehicles to the gospel. Now, here's, here's the, 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 the way Christ handled that. He used probing questions to uncover further needs that she maybe wouldn't have dared to talk about and led her to the gospel by doing that. And again, Ray Comfort uh, has ways that you can get into people's lives this way. But um, uh, uh, you, you can't divorce that from the felt needs, and we'll look at that in a little bit. 
A fifth thing that shows that you care is when you stop your busy schedule and you take unscheduled time out for people. Now, this is a huge way of showing that you care. Verse 32 says, So Jesus stood still and called them. Now, we have, well, maybe I should just speak for myself. I have a hard time standing still. If I don't write in my schedule, stand still. <laughs> you know, it's probably, it's probably not going to happen. It's really, really hard. I'm just about as guilty as anybody on this. I've gotten a lot better on this, but I tend to be so project-oriented, so production-oriented, and so schedule-oriented that sometimes I feel a sense of irritation when a new need comes up, and I have to immediately repent. And I've gotten better at repenting within seconds instead of within days. But I have to immediately repent. No, Lord, it's precisely for the people and their needs that you've called me. I'm not serving my schedule, but Lord, I I want you to forgive me because my schedule has become a dictator rather than a servant, rather than a tool. And that, that's the thing that I'm uh, getting at here. My wife's a whole lot better than I am at uh, being able to flex very, very quickly, be sensitive to what the Spirit's wanting us to do. And I'm getting better at that, and I think we all need to get better at that. Now, lest you, those of you who never schedule, say, ah, good, I don't need a, a schedule, I don't want you to take it to that extreme because Christ was very scheduled, and I believe he wants us to be scheduled. Certainly the Apostle Paul was scheduled. I think we waste huge amounts of time that is unnecessarily wasted because we're not planning. Now, Christ was very planned. You look at the, the way he talks about the hour and the day and uh, I must go. And he talks about his schedule. You, you'll realize it's not as if he's not planning the future. Paul often planned, he says, you know, to come to, to Rome. So don't go to that extreme. But here's my point. Our schedules need to be flexible. They need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Let me apply this. Have you mothers stopped your chores from time to time to sit down and talk with your kids heart to heart? Or do your kids know it's a death wish if they mess with your schedule? Okay, that, that's one application. And again, we have to have balance here because Christ sometimes made people wait until he was done with his teaching, which sometimes was a long wait before he healed them. So it's appropriate to ask your kids to wait. Say, no, you need to learn some patience here. I'm not going to deal with this for another hour. Appropriate to wait. My point is don't be driven by your schedule. Don't be driven by your needs. Be driven by the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. Okay, that's the kind of balance that we're talking about in, uh, in this section. Okay, a sixth principle is the importance of your personal presence. And you can see that in verse 32. It says, he called them. Now, even here, it's not absolute. You can think of his healing of the centurion's um, servant or son and the Syrophoenician lady. He healed them from a distance. He didn't even go to see them. And I think evangelism by mail, that's a perfectly appropriate thing. I think we need to do a whole lot more evangelism by mail. In fact, my... Uh, my daughter, uh, just this past week, sent out two strategic letters to, to, uh, to two people with a, with a tract inside, uh, just seeking to be a witness. So we're not talking about uh, one versus the other. We're talking about both uh, and. But I think there is this tendency in America to want to throw money at problems 
and just minister from a distance without our hands being involved. We don't want personal involvement. And that's true in terms of evangelism as well. There's people who say, yeah, we want the church to be involved in evangelism, but they won't ever evangelize. God calls every one of us to have a personal presence in the lives of other people, whether it's in mercy ministries, evangelism, many times those two dovetail uh, together. Seventh principle that Christ shows here is that we need to find out the felt needs of people. Now, earlier we were saying we need to understand and ask the Spirit, what are the true needs, the greater needs, the, 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 the needs that they don't sense themselves? But here we're talking about what are the needs these people sense. Don't immediately jump to conclusions because um, you might, based on what you see, think that this person has such and such a felt need But felt needs will always be there. God has sovereignly put into the lives of people all kinds of issues and problems that are designed by Him to make them consider the claims of the gospel. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't assume. Verse 21, He asks, What do you want me to do for you? Well, He sees that they're blind. He could have just assumed that they want healing. But He asks, What do you want me to do for you? It could have been something else. It could have been that they would come up and say, you know, we haven't gotten very much money. Could you please give us some money? He did have a money bag. Obviously, there were people who asked for money. Uh, They had a Mercy Ministries bag with Judas Iscariot carried and pilfered from from time to time. They used this Messianic title of, of Lord and the Messianic title of Son of David. So maybe there's something spiritual. Maybe they're more concerned about hell than they are about healing. That may have been their felt need. But the point is, he asks them, what is it you want me to do for them? That's where he starts. Their felt needs, not their need. They had a far greater need to, to, to escape from their sins and escape from hell. But he doesn't start there. Very interestingly, he starts with, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this can be abused. Uh, but Gary North, in, in an essay called Bread and Butter Evangelism, points out that Reformed people are sometimes lousy evangelists because we're always wanting to answer questions that nobody's ask, asking, right? <laughs> oh, I've got a great answer, you know, but they're, they're not interested in that thing. So he says, find out what people's felt needs are, show them that the Bible is relevant to those felt needs, and when you have solved those felt needs, then you can go on to show the further claims of Christ upon their lives. And so here's the point. If Jesus is willing to say, what do you want me to do for you? There's no reason why we cannot ask the same question. What do you want me to do for you? You cannot ram the gospel down people's throats. If they're not interested, they'll tell you. They'll tell you pretty quickly. But again, God has sovereignly brought all kinds of issues into their lives to lead to the gospel. And maybe they've gone or presently are going through a messy, messy divorce. They're experiencing pain, financial disaster. They're experiencing sexual tension, all kinds of issues. Maybe all they need is a shoulder to cry on and for you to give some answers for what they're going through from the Bible. And as they sense you're caring, as they sense that the Bible is relevant to what they're going through, that may open them up then to the greater needs of them being saved uh, from their sins and, and, and going to heaven. So... The problem with a lot of ministry is we are answering questions no one is asking. We're scratching where there is no itch, and it rubs people the wrong way. And it's true, we can take this uh, principle too far because Jesus did sometimes help people realize what their true needs are by asking 
probing questions, and that's what Ray Comfort uh, is brilliant at. But if we have not coupled uh, you know, that with a willingness to minister to felt needs, uh, I think it'll weaken our presentation. Eighth principle that shows we care is empathizing emotionally with others. Verse 34 says, And Jesus had compassion on them. Now, I've mentioned to you before that the word for compassion, I love this word, splunknidzo, it means guts or intestines, but it's a word for emotions, emotions churning uh, within. And in the Gospels, uh, these emotions help you to empathize with the needs that other people are going through. Maybe it'll show on your face, maybe in your eyes, maybe it'll be the way that you're talking to them. But uh, they will sense very, very quickly uh, whether you uh, care for them or not. And it's the first few moments after they unload their grief or unload their pain or their need upon you that has that opportunity. It's not much of an opportunity that, that, that will show in some way whether you care or don't care. Now, again, this is not just for their benefit. It's for your benefit as well, because in the Gospels, anytime these splunknidzo, these emotions are working, they're moving people to activity. And so when you're open to allowing these emotions to churn, it can drive you to evangelism. Uh, five times the Gospel says about Jesus, he was moved by compassion. So here's my admonition. Daily ask God for compassion for the lost, and what you're going to begin finding over time is it's going to be easier and easier to do evangelism. The last principle is that we should not underestimate the power of touch. Verse 34 says, and touched their eyes. Now, I find it amazing how many times Jesus touched people in his ministry. Uh, just read through the Gospels and see how many times he touched. Just an amazing thing, and especially how many times he touched people that others probably would never have touched. Uh, I grew up in a boarding school where for months at a time, because we saw our parents in the summer and uh, in, in, uh, for a couple of weeks, I think it was, in the wintertime, but for months at a time, I wouldn't get, you know, hugs, and I wouldn't get touch, and I longed for those kinds of things, and you don't know how much you miss it until you don't have it. Well, I think it's the same with these people. These beggars probably did not have the kind of touch and the kind of love expressed tangibly like that that we are used to, 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 to experiencing. Many times when people would give money, they would just throw it at, from a distance. They didn't want to get too close. might get fleas. Or worse, Jews felt they might get ceremonially unclean. And yet Jesus actually touched them. He didn't just get close. He touched them. There are some people that uh, you might minister to that you don't even want to touch them, let alone hug them. You almost feel uncomfortable sitting on their sofa because, uh, you know, it's so unclean. And yet it's interesting that with the lepers, Jesus touched those lepers. Jews would not have done that. They were afraid of, of getting contaminated by the leprosy. But for sure, the inconvenience of getting unclean, having to ceremonially wash themselves and, and things like that, and yet Jesus was willing uh, to touch them. And it must have been an incredibly emotional experience for these lepers, whom everybody stayed as far away from as they could. Almost a liberating thing in terms of their emotional life. So it wasn't an impersonal healing. And in Mercy Ministries... Uh, it can be a powerful prelude to the gospel. Now, again, I have to admit, this is probably one of the points that I'm the weakest on. Um, 
I'm not one of those touchy-feely people. You know that I've tried to institute hugs and um, holy kisses, right? Okay, we do it. I don't do it real consistently. It's a biblical practice that we have to grow in, but it doesn't come naturally to me. But I've seen this very, very powerfully used in opening people to the gospel. And you know what? I don't know why, but it seems like it's mostly women that I've witnessed doing this. I don't know what it is about our culture, but... uh, uh, there's uh, some friends, I won't give you the names of them. It's just, I just am astonished. And they just make these people feel relaxed and at home that they're cared for. And that's where I want to get. I'm not even remotely there. I'm still kind of stiff. But uh, don't underestimate the power of touch in, in the gospel. So just to review, if you want to demonstrate your care and evangelism and mercy ministries, first, don't be programmatic, be personal. Second, focus on individuals, even in a crowd. Third, don't be put off by eccentric behavior. Certainly do not mock uh, eccentric behavior. Fourth, carefully examine the true needs of others. Fifth, be willing to stop your schedule sometimes. Sixth, give personal presence. Seventh, find out the felt needs of people. Don't just jump to conclusions about what you think they are. Eighth, empathize with others. Express compassion. And all three Gospels, uh, you know, you just see the compassion of Christ, either in his eyes, his demeanor, but somehow it was expressed. And then ninth, do not underestimate the power of touch. And may God receive all of the glory as you guys reach out to a world in need and show his care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of these illustrations in your word, and we recognize None of this comes naturally to us. We need your grace. We need the the grace of your Holy Spirit working within our hearts and reaching out uh, to these people. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us and give to us the ability to say, I love you, even without words. And Father, I pray that as we put these things on, that it would make our verbal witness that much more powerful. Uh, We uh, pray, Father, that uh, you would be glorified in this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.